If you have your Bibles, flip them open to Revelation chapter 7, and it is our high ambition tonight to finish the chapter, and I think, I think we're going to get there. So um, let me read the passages that went over, uh, that Scott and Bo went over last week, and then we'll move into this next one, because uh, obviously this is all the same event, right? <laughs> we're, we're, chapter 7 is taking place at a very particular time during the book of Revelation, during the tribulation period. And there's a very particular reason as to why we're getting this sequence. So let's start in verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth and the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel who were sealed. And then they go on to list 12,000 from 12 particular tribes. So, Sean, take it. Following through on the passage that introduces the 144,000, it is important to note that the 144,000 have been introduced. Now, the questions that we have to ask and that will be answered from here are, why are they a thing? What purpose do they serve? Secondly, and I think also importantly, will people be getting saved during the tribulation, or has God switched from saving mode to wrath mode, and there's no in-between? And then lastly, uh, as we've titled this message, A Glimpse of Heaven, we'll get a bit of what that is like as well. So starting off in the verse we will begin this evening, in verse 8, or actually we finished verse 8, let's finish to verse 9, it says, after these things, after the what things, the verses 1 through 8 things, I looked, we'll talk about who is looking in a second, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number. Of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels around the throne, and the elders, and the four living creatures, and... Uh, and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then uh, one of the elders will get to their conversation here in a second. But taking this introductory series of verses to the passages we'll be covering here tonight, we get the answer to the first question, will people be saved during the tribulation? In order to first clarify our reasoning for the answer being yes, we need to ask, first of all, who is the I speaking when it says, I looked? The answer to that is the Apostle John. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, he was introduced as the author of this book and who was the one taken up to heaven in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. So you understand the progress here. The not just who, as far as is speaking, but the where are we is in heaven. It mentions this crowd, this numberless crowd, as before the throne of God and the Lamb. As a spoiler to our third point, heaven is classified as where God is. 
And if they're before the throne, which was described in Revelation chapter 4, and before the Lamb, who is described in Revelation chapter 5, is also before the throne, then we can note that is their location. And it's also uh, worth cross-referencing that with other passages that describe heaven this way as with Jesus. You know, in two words or less, how would you describe heaven apart from heaven? With Jesus, Paul the Apostle said in Philippians 1.23, uh, describing his desire to go to heaven, he used an interesting phrase, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So this comparison to his present circumstances, a sentiment I'm sure we're all sharing more and more, is that he wants to be with Christ. That would be synonymous with in heaven because they're one and the same. And the third question that we get answered in this passage is, what are we told about the crowd John sees in heaven? If we can clarify, one, that this is John seeing them and that they are in heaven. And the answer is, well, basically given to us in the passages. We're told they're wearing white robes. Now, white robes, that uh, that sounds familiar as an Old Testament junkie. Uh, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, uh, Joshua the high priest is shown being accused by Satan, and the angel of the Lord, who we believe is Jesus, takes his filthy robes from him and covers him with white robes, and then goes on to say, see, I have removed your iniquity from you. So in previous prophetic passages... We have white robes or clean robes being compared synonymously with something that replaces our sin, a right relationship with God. Revelation will go on to repeat that in chapter 19, but just so that you don't have to take my word for it, Isaiah 61.10 directly spells it out for us. Isaiah speaking says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So we see this common theme repeated in Scripture, Old Testament. The audience that John is speaking to would be familiar with these things, that what? These white robes that the people are wearing are the right relationship with God that they have. And the book of Revelation will continue to use that theme. We're also told they had palm branches in their hands. Now you may remember in uh, John chapter 12, in the Synoptic Gospels, when Jesus had his triumphal entry, they greeted him with palm branches, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting Psalm 118, I believe. But what's interesting about the palm branches is that's actually not necessarily from the Bible. It's actually from the time of the Maccabees. If you're familiar with the history around Hanukkah, you know that name well. If you want uh, more information, feel free to call us on our radio program. We'll give you the details. But the short summary of the palm branch's significance is that this is how they received in ancient Israel a savior or a redeemer, someone who would liberate them from the iron grip of the Greeks. And they repeated this sentiment historically with Jesus, and that's recorded for us. Now, we're also told what they had to say, and that was to worship, or literally to bow down, to recognize who someone is. And both the crowd and the angels and the elders, who were introduced in Revelation 4, all have a direct ownership of this God as our God. And you'd notice the special emphasis being placed there. So of all the common features of people in heaven that John has seen, they are righteous, they are celebrating a victory given to them by God, and they recognize God as mine. 
So with that ownership, then we're given some very interesting features as far as what kind of people, but even more significantly, I think you set up the context, the setting of this fairly well, and noting that we're in the tribulation and there's more people here than anyone who could count. Now, we'll go into the next passages where John is wondering where they came from, but given what we know about them so far, is there anything else we'd want to say? No. No, let's keep going. All right. <laughs> Verse 13, John speaking, actually uh, John writing, but the one speaking says, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, using this very Jewish sentiment of cleansing, being dedicated to God. But what's interesting about this as well is it basically throws a monkey wrench in the whole theory that people won't get saved during the tribulation. And if it's spelled out fairly plainly in English here, why then do some people still come to that conclusion? Well, there's two reasons. The first is because, and rightly so, Second Thessalonians chapter 2 mentions the revealing of the lawless one, the Antichrist, the man of sin, the Syrian, the cruel king of the north, take your pick to his name, will not be revealed until he who restrains is taken away. And pretty much across the board, unless you just totally sensationalize any prophetic word, they recognize that as the Holy Spirit. We believe that it's the Holy Spirit's work through the church. There are others who disagree on the handling, but that's essentially the broad view. Now, the one who restrains the coming of the lawless one, the Holy Spirit, to be taken away, they would say, well then, since First Thessalon- Thessalonians, First Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 3 says, no one can call Jesus Lord. Salvation, right? Apart from the Holy Spirit, it would then stand to reason that if the Holy Spirit's no longer here, or no longer at least working in this world in that way, then how could someone get saved? But there's two problems. First of all, they're kind of taking two steps too far in just how much the Holy Spirit has withdrawn himself from us during this time. Certainly, he's not restraining that evil anymore, right? He's identified as the one who restrains. But If he were to restrain, or rather he were not to restrain, and withdraw himself completely, uh, we're told in Job 34 and verse 14, I encourage you to read this along with me, total devoid of the Holy Spirit. Every single capacity, every single work the Holy Spirit would do and is doing in this world. If that was to be withdrawn, this is what would happen. Job 34, 14. If he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, literally spirit, breath, they're one and the same word, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Now, as morbid as the joke may seem, two weeks ago we read that there are more than piles of dust asking for the rocks and mountains to fall on them at this time in history. And while I have had very few riveting conversations with piles of dust, none of them included suicidal tendencies. I'll let you know if that changes. But if we're talking to the world at this time, obviously that's not what the Spirit has withdrawn from us. That's not how he's withdrawn. So he is still doing something. And if we understand that our God is still in the saving business even at this time, I do the math... And that's a bigger number than has ever been recorded in history. Now, we can note maybe at Pentecost, 
several thousand people were saved. We can note that throughout the ages, multitudes of people have come to a saving relationship with the Jewish Messiah, but no one could number, even from a heavenly scene. I mean, 144,000 is a big enough number, and John said he heard the number of them. But this number can't be accounted for. And noting that at least we've capped at 6 billion people left on the planet, that's a good thing. Now you say, well, these are the 144,000, these are the Jews. Well, it says from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. And these are the ones that are saying salvation belongs to our God. So this recognition of the fact that, A, they're in heaven, which means they got killed somehow, whether it was from collateral damage of the plagues or the persecution, probably the latter. But when we're talking about the area of concern a lot of people have and saying, well, what if my loved ones are left behind? Will they be unable of being saved? No, in fact, they're probably going to be more open, dramatically so, to salvation at that time than any other one. And why? Because the point of the tribulation isn't limited to punishment. It's not limited to wrath. If the only purpose of the tribulation was wrath, it wouldn't be drawn out by seven years. Yeah, and and uh, actually, I would I would just take that point and, and turn it in a little way. You know, the, the placement of this passage is really significant. So, uh, if you've been with us in our study of the Book of Revelation, this has happened after the final seal judgment. So, there's when you go through the Book of Revelation, there are three sets of judgments that get progressively worse as you go through the book. The first are called the seal judgments, and the final seal, the seventh seal gives way to what's called the trumpet judgments, and then the final trumpet gives way to what we call the bowl judgments. And as you're reading the book, after these, uh, after one set of plagues or one set of uh, judgments occur, there's like a, a brief pause, like a, like a breath that happens. And that's what's happening in this chapter. There's a brief pause. And we see that the purpose of God's wrath is to convert people. So, in other words, when a lot of people, especially in our culture, think of the idea of wrath or anger or judgment, they seem to separate it from love or goodwill. And that's an unfortunate thing to occur. But in the Bible, it's not so. God's wrath is always a desire for people to repent and to seek something better. So, in other words, what God does is he sets up a juxtaposition of showing people there is a way of life and there is a way of death. To reject me is not simply to not choose me, but it is to choose something. And God is revealing to people what life without God is going to be like. What would a life without God really entail? And he shows them in this tiny amount of time that he has for them. And he's just like, just expand that out for ever. And what you see in the judgments also, very interestingly, is God isn't uh, predominantly like shown with a sword or something like that striking the earth. What you actually see happening is God removes things from the earth. He removes his peace so war reigns. He removes protection and so the stars fall from the sky. He removes, and the more he removes, the more the earth suffers. What we see is that God's absence is the presence of something. The absence of good is the presence of evil and calamity. And what God's trying to show people is, this is what it would be like to be without me forever. But you don't have to be without me forever. You can repent. You can come 
and know me personally and have salvation from this. It's also interesting that before we get into verse 9 where he sees this great multitude, we see the 144,000 sealed, right? These these Jewish people, we, we figure out later on that they're men, they're specifically males, they're sealed and they're actually, in a weird way, they're sealed before the next set of judgments come, which, which signifies maybe they're being protected in a way as the judgments continue. And it seems like you see them, and then you see this great multitude. And what we can infer there is that the great multitude are the works of the 144,000, meaning that the 144,000 aren't just sealed for nothing. They are active during the tribulation period. They are out, and we get to see what they're going to accomplish. So these these men that are chosen by God, sealed for this very particular purpose, are going to be leading an incredible, uh, incredibly ambitious uh, type of outreach, if you want to put it that way, uh, type of evangelistic charge, and it's going to be incredibly successful. A lot of people are going to come to God during this period. So we, we should never look at the wrath of God being put upon this earth as a result of God being done with the earth. There is only one judgment in which God will be done with people, and that's the final judgment. Anything that happens on this earth, any type of judgment that happens on this earth, is never a result of God being done with someone. It is always a result of God wanting someone to turn. In other words, just like a loving father, I'm going to instill in you, I'm going to give you a level of pain and suffering through discipline to protect you from a greater level of pain and suffering that your bad behavior would produce naturally, for the wages of sin is death. So God disciplines those that he loves. And, and again, this is, this is very important for Christians to understand, because usually when calamities or something befalls the world, people are like, this is God judging the world. And there's this very arrogant, narcissistic view that Christians have when they say that, which is that, yeah, like the earth is getting what's coming to them. And they're forgetting that that's what's coming to you too, unless Jesus forgives you. There's this really, again, just very arrogant, very foolish perspective of like, yes, like I don't deserve that stuff. Like the world deserves that stuff. Good on them. You know, you get them, God. This is exactly what they have coming to them, when in reality we have forgotten that if it's not for the grace of God, this is exactly what is owed to us. So in the middle of judgment, remember mercy. And uh, anything else you'd like to add before we move on? No, just, again, reiterating that point and setting up the frame for this very well. As God's wrath is being poured out, we're given these intervals. And you'll see this basically become a trend. After the sealed judgments, we're told, but God's still saving people, Revelation 7. After the trumpet judgments, Revelation 8 and 9, we have another pause, chapters uh, 10 through 11. Note the two witnesses and their impact. After the seventh trumpet judgment, another pause, and the rise of the Antichrist as well, another pause and the 144,000's replacements, if you will, following the abomination that causes desolation. And even after the second coming of Christ, a pause in noting what the saints will be doing before the final judgment. So notice, God can't get through two chapters without saying, but I'm still reaching out, but I'm still saving people. The purpose of the tribulation is not wrath. 
It's the last possible chance for mankind, and many will take advantage. Verse 15, following after those who come out of the great tribulation and wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb, it says, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. That's a reference. Note that. He who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. That's two references. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. For those who are familiar with Psalm 23, you probably recognize one of those references. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The Lamb shepherding us as being part and parcel of the heavenly state is fairly plain to see, that we're dumb little creatures that can't take care of ourselves, but he's got that covered. But another passage is referenced in this in not only living waters, but living fountains of waters that he leads them. That's a reference to your favorite book in the Bible, Jeremiah chapter 2, is it not? Now, what's the significance of God referring to himself specifically in verse 13? When he's speaking to Israel, you've left me for broken cisterns that hold no water. That was Israel's first sin, but have forsaken me the what? The fountain of living water. So God characteristically describing himself not just as some sort of like, you know, living water monster or something. No, living water is another word for spring water. Best thing that you could find in the Middle Eastern desert. And this picture being provided of not only God's fellowship with his people as a shepherd, but also his provider, that he is the reason that heaven is going to be so wonderful. It also makes a reference to them serving him in his temple day or night. Well, for those of you who've been good students and read ahead, you may remember in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, it mentions there is no temple in the new creation, for the Lord is its temple. Well, that's actually because this is another reference to something. For those of you who know your Old Testament, you remember after Moses, the first five books of the Bible have reached their climax, we now go into the history of Israel in the promised land, and it begins in the book of Joshua. And in Joshua chapter 9, this is after Rahab, Jericho, uh, Ai, the stoning of Achan, and another uh, interesting encounter. But the incident involving the Gibeonites, I know not a name that you guys have, you know, plastered on your uh, refrigerator with a vegetable magnet or something. The Gibeonites were an interesting crowd because as one of the Canaanites who were under God's curse, they were going to be a recipient of the judgment that Joshua and the nation of Israel were going to mete out. They were not only aware of God's warnings like Rahab and the people of Jericho were, but were basically next on the shopping list, so to speak, to get nuked. And what was interesting about their encounter is when they saw the fall of Ai and they said, well, they were tougher than us. They looked at Jericho and said, well, they were bigger than us. We got no chance here. I know. I'll 
gather together some of our representatives, our diplomats, and this is a summary. Read Joshua chapter 9 in your own time. Don't just take our word for it. And they, you know, made themselves look like they had traveled a long way. They got moldy bread deliberately to make it look like it had aged. They wore raggedy clothing, you know, messed up their hair and stuff and said, oh, hey, uh, Joshua, uh, we, we heard from a very far away land, what you and your people are doing here, and we want to be a part of it. Uh, We'd like a a working alliance with you guys. And on and on they go, just kind of exasperating the fact. I mean, you just can't imagine how long we've traveled. I mean, just look at this bread. I mean, I guess I should have eaten it by now, but it got all moldy. And look at my clothes, man. You think I would just deliberately dress up like this. They're trying to pull a fast one. But Joshua agrees to their alliance. And then on their way to the next city, they said, hey, uh, you agreed to this arrangement. You can't invade us now. Joshua, putting four and 18 together, said that doesn't, this is a contract that's predicated on fraud. But God did something interesting. He said, as slimy as it was, even though it was a last second conversion right before judgment was going to fall. Has anyone noticed a common theme here yet? That's good enough. They asked for mercy, and even if it was at the last minute, I want you to not only make the Gibeonites recipients of my mercy, like Rahab was, literally adopted into the family of the Messiah, but even more significantly, I'm going to have them do what? You can read this in Joshua chapter 9. I want them exclusively to be servants of the priests in the temple. The ones who serve in the house of the living God, who weren't Jews, but were taken in by the Jews, are now servants of God in his temple. That's the reference being made. So in these three allusions and references to heaven, we have the fellowship with God that is unbroken. We have the literal allusion to the Gibeonites in the book of Joshua, noting the timing of their salvation being no less legitimate. But the third feature is the one that people like to jump on a lot. And there's, again, three ways people generally interpret it. Regarding God wiping away every tear from their eyes, that is a question we've gotten on the program several times, and it's one that throws people because they wonder, okay, will there be tears in heaven or not? And it's a fair question. Some people would say, well, the tears in this passage will be non-existent because God will always wipe them away. It's a passive description of God's comfort, meaning there's no reason to weep anymore because God is there. And while I recognize the logic, note that the passage mentions tears, not non-existent tears. The second interpretation, and I would wholeheartedly disagree with this, is that the tears are symbolic of any negative emotion that will be removed from us by God. People have put this forward, but I respectfully disagree because of the third reason. Tears aren't bad. God weeps over us. In Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse verses 1 through 2, Jeremiah sharing the heart of God is weeping over Jerusalem so much so he says, oh, that my eyes were fountains. Got like SpongeBob animations just leaking out water at a very high rate. But noting this point, he also demonstrated that for us in his incarnation. When he came to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, you remember John eleven thirty five. If you haven't memorized it, what's the matter with you? It's two words. Jesus Wait, I thought tears were sinful. 
There you go. So when we're talking about this issue of will there be tears in heaven, people then start to speculate and say, well, then will we be, what will we be weeping over? And that's where the first interpretation is credence. But here's the thing. You have a perfect comforter and a need for comfort. Whether it's reflecting on your past sins, grieving over those who aren't there with you, that's what, not what we're told in Scripture. What we're told is that when you weep, someone will always be there. In fact, the one will always be there. And there would never be a greater comfort in noting that when I am grieving, I'm not alone. Because that's where hopelessness, that's where grief becomes painful. And why we gather together in things like memorials. Because, and some of you may know we've uh, had a string of, uh, I guess, homecomings in our fellowship recently. And some of the individuals were very meaningful figures in our lives. But what's key about that grief isn't that it's something to be avoided or gone through. It's meant to be experienced because we recognize something is wrong. But if, on the other hand, we know that there are people who are hurting alongside us, that there are comforters who not only share with our pain, but also share in the necessary strength to experience that recognition, because note, we see things like death, we see things like disease, we see things like government, and say, what is wrong with this world? To fail to recognize that is wrong. To avoid the mindset that I should not see these things as wrong and react accordingly is sinful. Because when Jesus looks at this world, he weeps. And he's not sinning. He's, in, he's the definition of the heavenly state. So if we have a reason to weep, then what will be the response? He will always be there which, frankly, is the best part of heaven. You say, the tears? No, the comfort. Because if we're asking ourselves a question, will I have anything to regret in life? Life is regret. But if, on the other hand, we're going to say, what then makes heaven worthwhile? The definition of heaven himself, not itself, himself. The more your eyes are on Jesus, the more your eyes are on the fact that heaven will be a place not only of perfection, not only of provision, but comfort. That is what makes it worth looking forward to, because as we grieve, we can't help but feel alone. We can't help but feel isolated. We can't help but feel it is hopeless. But then knowing our hope is in heaven, what that means then is why we are given these glimpses. What is the revelation? of Jesus Christ. First verse in the book, and should always come back to our focus. What is what will make heaven worthwhile? The fact he is there through grief and through joy, in provision and in protection. We won't only be safe. We won't only no longer have the opposition to peace that we experience in this world, whether it's very personally related to us, we're starting to now be reminded of in the sun and heat, but also noting other key details as well. Grief, pain, loss, sorrow, knowing that these emotions will still be a part of us in heaven, but now we won't have to experience them alone, that now we see darkly, but then face to face, that's the greatest hope we have of heaven. Yeah, um, so really cool, really beautiful. I hope, you, I hope we're all kind of listening to that and receiving it. A um, couple of interesting descriptions about heaven that stick out to me here. Uh, the first one is a lot of people, when they think about heaven, 
Uh, first of all, it seems so far off, meaning it seems so different than the world that we live in right now, and their imaginations kind of run wild about what heaven might be like. It's so distant, it's so different, that it's not really a consolation to us, right? It's such a like mystical place that's so far beyond our imagination or comprehension that nobody really looks forward to it. It's just kind of something that we accept as fact within Christianity, and so it doesn't serve as any type of consolation. A couple of things that Sean said there that should really speak to us about how we're to view heaven and how we can gain excitement for it. Uh, the first one is exactly what he's saying about heaven being all about a relationship with God. So what right now, what we as Christians live within is what some theologians have called the already but not yet. Uh, it means that we have a relationship with God, we have intimacy with him, but it's not consummated yet. It's not fulfilled. There is a distance that we have to experience before God. And because of that, there should be a deep longing placed within the Christian heart. We should never be fully satisfied on this earth. So some people mistake, and, and I'm going to get into this more in a second here, what we see in heaven, as Sean pointed out, is ultimate provision, that the people there are completely satisfied, contented, and pleased in every aspect, in every way you can possibly understand that. And it's true that God's pleasure, God's beauty, God's majesty are greater than anything else that we can have on this earth. And it's very possible for us to be satisfied in God, which is, again, something that people don't tend to understand about God. God is a pleasurable God. He's a beautiful God. He's a wonderful God. He wants to satisfy us. A lot of people, when they think about God, they think about an absence of pleasure. You leave pleasure to go after God, right? You, you have to take up your cross and follow Jesus, right? You have to give up the things that are most pleasing to you. Um, well, yeah, but if Jesus really is more pleasurable than the world, you're not really giving up anything to go with him. You're investing, right? I'm allowing something to fade so that I can have something better. The reason why God here, or Jesus, refers to himself as fountains of living water, living water throughout the Old Testament, and Sean referenced one of the passages that referenced this, was his Jeremiah chapter 2, Living water is always a picture of pleasure. And what God's showing people is he's showing the water that you're searching after. Why is, why is it a reference to water? Because when you drink water, you get thirsty again. And while the pleasures of this world satisfy, they only satisfy for a time. You're constantly going back because you're constantly becoming dissatisfied. No matter how great a pleasure might be, you're going to be thirsty again. No matter how much water I could chug a gallon of water right now and probably make myself sick. But guess what? I'm going to get thirsty again. It's going to happen again. The pleasures of this earth are like that. C.S. Lewis, in his very excellent book, Mere Christianity, he talks about pleasure. And he says, whenever we take up a new career or we get into a new relationship or we visit some distant land that we find really enchanting and beautiful, he says, there's a pleasure that we grab hold of in the first moments that slowly slips through our fingers the longer we engage. He says, I'm not talking about failed marriages or bad trips or terrible careers. I'm talking about the best possible ones. There is something that we feel when we get into these things that slowly fades away and can never be reclaimed. 
Now, he later on, he speaks about this idea of we must understand that these things were never meant to satisfy us, but they were meant to allude to the real thing, meaning our relationship with God. So God being a pleasurable being, God being a satisfying being, we pursue him and enjoy him on that light. We can have a piece of heaven right now. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You can enjoy heavenly glory today. You don't have to wait until you die. And what convicted me when I read passages like this when I was coming back to God is, have I ever looked at my relationship with God like that? Have I ever treated my relationship with God like that? That I'm pursuing God as being a satisfying, contented being. That he can actually fill me. He can please me. He can benefit me. Some Christians even struggle doing that because they feel like that's selfish. Man, I don't want to be selfish. I don't want to selfishly pursue God for pleasure. I could read various passages in the Bible where people flat out ask God to be pleasurable to them. Psalm 51, David says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. But let's put those aside for a second. I like this one illustration because it's my favorite one. Um, Imagine for a second, you know, we just had Valentine's Day. You husbands, you come home on Valentine's Day. You got flowers, you got chocolates and things like that. And the wife says, man, why did you, you buy these for me? And he's like, well, it was a real bummer. It cost me a lot of good hard-earned cash. I would have rather spent it on some better things. But, you know, it's my obligation as, as a husband to do that for you. Does that sound appealing to you ladies? Does that sound like something you want to hear? And some people think that if we offer God that kind of praise, quote-unquote, he's going to be satisfied with it. Why are you going to church? Well, it's boring and terrible, but, you know, God, I have to do it. And so you're, you're, you're lucky. It's my obligation. I'm doing this. Why are you sharing your faith? Well, you know, it's terrible. It takes up my Saturdays. It's awkward, and I don't want to get into arguments. But you know what? You know, God tells me to do it, so I guess I'm going to have to do it. They think that that type of service is going to be pleasing to God. It's not. What's the correct response? Why did you buy me these flowers? Why did you give me these things? Because I love you. Man, it, it delighted me to do this for you. It pleased me. You're so amazing. You're so incredible. I couldn't imagine spending my money on anything better. Right? Would that not please someone to hear that? That's what's going to please God. Why did you serve me? What else could I have done, Lord, with my life? What better things could I have done with my time, with my money, with my resources, with my talents, than serve you? You are so pleasing. You are so beautiful. Of course. And that's another interesting thing about this passage is it talks about them serving God. Some people see heaven as like this hedonistic paradise where you're just kind of like lazy and just gorging yourself all day and enjoying like grapes and stuff or whatever. You know, the idea of people working in heaven sounds odd. Like, man, people are working. I mean, my job is the one thing I want to get out of. You know, like why, why would working be a part of heaven? You have to remember in the Garden of Eden, Adam worked. Before the fall, Adam had work. And God says something very interesting to Adam when the fall occurs. He doesn't say, now you have to work. He says, from the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. Work wasn't the curse. There was a labor underneath the work that got added into the curse. What was it? I don't have time to get into this right now, but when you look at Genesis 3... And you look at the curses giving to woman and to man, there seems to be a very interesting dichotomy that happens there. 
where the curse that is specific to the gender seems to be aimed at what gives that particular gender the most amount of significance. To the woman, it was sensuality in her relationship to her husband. In other words, to please man or to rule. To men, it's their work. And I find that really fascinating as a man. If you hang out with a group of guys, what's the first question that a group of guys is going to ask you when you meet them for the first time? What do you do for a living? Your job is your identity as a man. The way you provide, the way you take care of yourself, that is a part of your identity. And because of that, there is a labor to your work. You have to work. You have to do it. It is a part of your identity. A lot of people die when they retire because they just don't have anything else linking their identity. They lose their will to live. So many people commit suicide because they lose their careers. Side note, it's very interesting to me that the first wave feminists were like, man, we want that. You know, screw being mothers and, you know, raising the next generation of children and saying that that's like the best thing that we can do. No, no, no. Let's be like men and find our value in career because that's awesome. You know, that, that was very odd that we made that decision as a culture. Anyway, that was just a side note. Anyway, going back to this career thing, the work isn't the problem. It's that labor of identity that's underneath the work that's the problem. What we see here is that people are working, but they're pleased in the work. They're pleased in the work because they're working for a very particular goal. They're working to serve Jesus. You ever wonder why in the Bible people say work heartily as unto Jesus? Right? Now, there's a lot of things I could glean from that about the type of work you're supposed to be doing and the quality of work you're supposed to be performing. But one of the main things they're trying to suggest is, are you finding your value through the work or are you working unto Jesus? Are you already satisfied with your identity in Christ and now you're working out of that, out of joy? If I lose this job, so what? God is my provision. If I don't get promoted, that's okay. God's going to take care of me. If my job isn't what I wanted it to be, that's okay. God's my identity. My greatest job and provision within this world is to reflect him and his character. I'm in his image and likeness. That's my value, not career, not money in the bank, right? That eliminates the labor underneath the work. It gives you rest. So heaven, this goes back into the phrase, the already but not yet. We don't have the totality of it, but if heaven is all about intimacy with God, we can taste it right now. We can taste it right now. Everything that these people are experiencing in the there and after, we can experience today. We don't have to wait for heaven. And the more you experience it, the more you enjoy it, guess what? The more you're going to look forward to heaven. And the more you're going to want to share your faith with the people around you. Because again, look at the juxtaposition. What you see in chapter 6, want destruction, corruption, evil, fallenness, war, conflict. What do you see in chapter 7? Harmony, peace, satisfaction, absolute pleasure, absolute safety. The difference is very, very clear. And if we know that difference and we've tasted and seen it, it's going to make us want to share it with others. It's going to make us want to tell people about it, not to be like, oh, man, I guess I got to go share because, you know, I guess I guess God's kind of the good news, you know, but I, I you know, I get a little timid talking about that. You're going to be like, man, like God is the this is good news. This is beautiful news. You could be satisfied. You could be pleased. You can have 
ultimate joy and satisfaction in God. That's what we share with people, and that's what we should be enjoying for sure. Anything, any last thoughts? Good? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are the source of satisfaction and joy. You are the fountain of living water. I pray, Lord, that we would come to be satisfied in you, Lord. We would see how great and how awesome your beauty and your joy really are. Lord, I pray that you would help us to find joy even on our labor in this earth and that you would teach us to share your truth, to share your goodness with those around us, not out of uh, obligation, not out of guilt, but out of genuine joy that we get to communicate to others about who you are and the great things that you have done in our lives and the great things that you can do in theirs. You are the solution to every problem. You are the satisfaction that our hearts are longing for. We love you, Lord, and we pray we can find rest in you and in your name. Amen.